This is Emma Evans, and you're listening to Stories of a Refugee. I am joined today by Lily. Uh, For safety purposes, we are using a pseudoname. Uh, Lily, I just want you to be aware that at any point during this interview, if you feel uncomfortable by a question, um, you are welcome to skip the question or stop the interview at any time. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. So I first just want to hear a little bit about your home country, Eritrea. Um, yeah, so I, I was born there, and I lived there until I was about nine years old. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a happy childhood there, but obviously thinking about things now, um, I know that it's not a good place to be by any means. Now, what year were you born in? Uh, I was born in 1999. And you said that you lived there until you were nine years old, correct? Yes. So from your best memories, what was it like in the country at that time? What were the conditions like? So I, I can tell you about the conditions from the perspective of a kid, right? Because that's, that's the only time that I actually lived there. And for me, what I really remember is, you know, my dad was, uh, he was in grad school, which is in the only university in the country. Um, my mom was working as a secretary in one of the courthouses, but all of my neighbors, the majority of them really didn't have jobs. Everyone was kind of just at home. And, you know, the government had some programs that helped people with basic things like food, but again, none of it was, you know, in hindsight, thinking about it now, none of it was really enough. People were struggling. And you were obviously in school at some point during this time as well. So what was that like for you? Yeah, so I spent um, up until third grade in school there. Um, My experiences there, I would say, are kind of skewed. Um, We were living with my mom's side of the family because my dad had already gone to the U.S. at that point. And so, you know, I was able to actually go to school, but a lot of kids don't have that opportunity and they either have to help their families at home or with work. Um, And, you know, at, at that point in my life, I thought it was a good experience. Now, looking at the education that you had in Eritrea during that time versus here now in the United States, how would you compare those two education systems? Right off the bat, um, you know, first of all, different languages, right? So that was something I learned when I came to the U.S., English. But um, I think there's, there's such a heavy focus on education in Eritrea, despite only a few kids being able to actually get educated. But if you're lucky enough to actually get educated, it's, it's very, the culture is very cutthroat, I would say. Um, just because if you don't excel, then you're probably not going to continue school. And, you know, you're, you'll probably end up helping your family or something like that. And now you mentioned earlier that you, your mom and your brother, correct, were in Eritrea and your dad was already in the United States. Why did he go without you guys? So my dad originally went to South Africa to continue grad school. Um, But what he ended up doing uh, was then going from South Africa, instead of returning back to Eritrea, he went to Sudan, where he requested a visa from the US embassy there. um, And he was there as a refugee. 
uh, because if he came back to Eritrea, he couldn't leave. That's that's one big policy in Eritrea. You can't leave unless you're an elder and you're sponsored by your kids abroad or something like that. Anyone under that age cannot leave the country legally. So he had to do it by means of going to school. He applied to grad school here in the U.S. and was able to obtain a visa, and, and that's why he was here ahead of us. And so where in the U.S. was he at that time? My dad was in Chicago at that time. Okay. So you and the rest of your family obviously ended up coming to the United States at some point. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah. Um, I have more insight into it now, now that I'm old and I've spoken to my mom about it. Um, a lot of the times, the way people leave Eritrea is illegally, and how you do that is there's a lot of people that you can pay to basically smuggle you out of the country. So um, while there's no internet in Eritrea, we have cafes where you can go and you pay a fee and you can use the internet and interact with people outside of Eritrea. It's heavily censored, but people have code words, I guess you could say, that they use when they're talking about these kinds of things. So my dad reached out to my mom um, online and they were talking about how they're gonna do this. And honestly, my mom did not want to leave comparative to other people in Eritrea, she was well off, at least relatively. And, you know, they, basically my dad had paid people that helped smuggle people out of Eritrea, and I guess the plan was in motion. Okay, so can you tell us exactly what happened during that journey? What was the process of getting smuggled out? Yeah, so the first thing we had to do was we had to pretend like we were taking a trip to another part of Eritrea. Um, only my grandma and my uncle knew where we were actually going. Um, my aunt didn't know, like my cousins, no one else knew, just because if it gets out, you're in jail, and no one really knows what happens if you go to jail in Eritrea. So we went um, to a, a, another city in Eritrea where there's a lot of people selling things that they you know, buy in other areas and they'll sell it in that city. So we went there. I remember there was a little hotel that we stayed at that day. I remember it was really hot. So what they do actually when it's really hot is they will move all the beds to this little courtyard area and you'll sleep outside. That's kind of a typical thing that happens in warmer areas. So I remember we stayed there that night. I thought I was on vacation. My mom didn't tell me what we were doing. I, I was told to tell anyone who asked where we were going that we were going on vacation. And then I remember the next day we had breakfast. My my dad's sister was there with us. She knew what was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember a man that was in the same restaurant that we were having breakfast at. He got up and he went to the sink to wash his hands. And I remember my aunt telling my mom, you need to go now. And my mom gets up and she goes to wash her hands at the same area. It's kind of an out, outside sink. It's like open in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I can see that they're talking. I'm not really sure what about it. I assume it's just someone my mom knows. And then my mom comes back down she looks really nervous, and I see my aunt trying to reassure her. And then the man walks out, and we wait a couple minutes, and then we get up and we start, like, speed walking behind this man. Okay. Um, we haven't really talked a lot about your brother either. At this time, how old was he? At this time, my brother was two years old. So it was me at nine and my brother at three. So you two. both really just thought, oh, what a fun vacation. We're just oh, yeah. I mean, my brother... 
I don't even know if he was really speaking fully at that point. He didn't know what was going on at all. Wow. All right. So you followed this man out. Yes. So we followed this man for about a mile. Um, We don't know the city. It's very remote. And he's kind of just going past houses to very remote areas. And at this point, it's all sand. And he keeps going, keeps going. Then out of nowhere, a Toyota just zooms past us. He gets in the car. And then my aunt picks me up. And she is running with me towards the car. My mom's running with my brother. And we jump in without my aunt. And we just go. And so at this point... You don't know what's going on. You're just getting shoved into a random van. Yeah, I have no idea what's happening still. I can see that my mom's very nervous. So we keep going in this truck, and it's a truck slash van. Um, And we get to this kind of checkpoint, which is Eritrean soldiers. And it's the checkpoint between Eritrea and Sudan. And I can't even remember how long we drove at that point. And the windows are all tinted, except the driver's side. And the driver opens the window on his side, hands the soldiers an envelope. They lower the, the kind of fence separating the area. And we keep going and we go for another maybe hour. And he stops the car. He goes to the back of the car and he changes the license plate on the car from an Eritrean one to a Sudan one so that the car looks like it's from Sudan. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back in the car and he says, say goodbye to Eritrea. He literally said that. And then we kept driving. And at a certain point, we had to start um, ducking in the car just because there was locals around. And they will, they will tell the government that you're there illegally. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, we were not allowed to be there just because it's so close to the Eritrean border. So we had to hide in the car. And the reason it's a problem if they tell anyone is because the soldiers aren't really supposed to be letting anyone pass. That guy has built a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And they know that he is, I don't know, whatever he gave them, he's going to consistently do that. Yeah, I was going to ask if you knew what was in the envelope. And if no those idea. soldiers were taking bribes to let illegal immigrants through. That's the best case scenario, that it was just bribes, yeah. Okay. So, now you're no longer in Eritrea. How much stuff did you bring? Because you were under the impression that this was a vacation, so I'm assuming you didn't have all of your belongings. My mom had a backpack. That was, that was We it. left anything else that we brought to this fake vacation with my aunt. Wow. She went back with it. You can't bring anything else. Wow. All right, so you're in Sudan now. Where do you go from there? Well, before we got to Sudan, actually, you have to wait for the other people that are also going to be entering Khartoum, which is a major city of Sudan, uh, for them to get everyone else into this. We were in an area called Kesala, mm-hmm. which is like the small um, outskirt of Sudan kind of place. And they have families there that will host these people that are escaping Eritrea. And you're in a room. And you, we were there for three days before we actually got into the city of Sudan until they got everyone else that was coming from Eritrea as well. So I remember we were in that room for three days. They were very nice people. Um, Their walls had, like, notes left from people that, like, went through their house. Oh, wow. And you can't leave the room because their neighbors will report what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And after three days, we finally got word that everyone was already there and that we were going to start actually heading to Sudan. So you can't leave the room because if the neighbors see you, you get reported how did you get out of there? 
without being seen. We left in the middle of the night. Um, a van came and it's weird to say, but we were lucky that my mom had kids with her, us, so we were able to actually be on the inside of it. Mm-hmm. But it was a truck too, so there was the rest of the people were outside, like on okay. the truck of the car, because there's so many of them. Wow. But we got to be inside. Um, so we left in the middle of the night, and I remember we kept driving, we kept driving, and we get to this very desert area, and we stop. It's still in the middle of the night. And they say, okay, it's... By the way, at this point, we're not dealing with people that speak Tigrinya, mm-hmm. the language of Eritrea anymore. It's people that speak Arabic. So there's no communication. Okay. So they stop in the middle of this, what looks just like a big desert. And we get out of the car and they put all our stuff and everyone is on the floor now. They get in their car and they leave. And everyone that's with us is just confused because... You know, you hear a lot of stories about as people are trying to escape Eritrea, Ethiopia, all of those countries, a lot of the people that smuggle you out will take the money and just not actually finish the job. Yeah. So they leave. And we wait and we wait. I think we probably waited about an hour. They finally come back. They brought coffee with them. And they started a fire in the sand. And and they made coffee. So we were there um, for a couple more hours. And then we started driving again. And... I remember it was really bright. There was like a full moon, which usually is a good thing, but not when you're trying to smuggle yeah. out of a country because, you know, there's, it's a remote area, but there's still houses around. So we had to be pretty, like they had to turn off the lights for the car as we were driving. Mm-hmm. Um, so no one saw. And then we got to this little lake area and we got out of the car and there was like a little boat. And I remember one of the smugglers, I guess, picked me up, put me on the boat. My mom got on there with my brother. We crossed that. And then we got back in another truck that there was yet another smuggler to help us get um, to the actual heart of Sudan. So then we were eventually in Khartoum after a couple hours. And so what happened when you got there? So we got there and my dad had a friend that lived there and Mm -hmm. we were at their house for a bit um so we were in sudan for a total of three months and i think after about a month we got another little place to ourselves and um a lot of uh like landlords in sudan Mm -hmm. that are that know that they're kind of harboring refugees because they know that they can report you they don't feel the need to really protect you or do their duties as a landlord so Mm -hmm. I remember we had neighbors that would get really drunk in the middle of the night and obviously my mom is just with me and my brother terrified and they would just get really loud really aggressive and you can kind of hear it happening but the landlord's not going to do anything yeah um later I found out those those men were actually smugglers themselves so that that's where they had the money to do all of that Mm mm-hmm and so obviously there's a language barrier at this time too. Mm-hmm. So living there for three months, how did you deal with that? Did you go outside very often or do anything? So yeah, it was very different experience. Um, Sudan at the time, my mom had to wear a burqa, mm-hmm. um, and you know she did that happily. It's at that point that's the least of your worries. There's a small Eritrean community there um, who all kind of know what's happening, so they're. In that way, we had a supportive kind of little group mm-hmm. that helped us with Arabic, things like that. Um, 
but you know obviously without considering everything in retrospect like in that moment like I, I thought it was fun right yeah. like you're nine years old it's it's the summer so I, I'm not going to school yeah and I remember I picked up a little bit of Arabic which I've since forgotten mm-hmm. but yeah we were there for three months okay so after the three months where'd you go next so after the three months during which um, we were, you know, coming and going from the U.S. Embassy, trying to figure everything out, figuring out the visas, we finally got our visas and we bought tickets to Chicago, which is where my dad was. Mm-hmm. And from Sudan, we were able to leave like normal. We got tickets. We had a layover in Jordan and we came straight to Chicago. Wow. It's crazy how much easier it is coming from different countries like everything you had to go through to get out of Eritrea and then to just absolutely get on a plane from Sudan and go to the United (laughs) States that's insane so obviously at this point your dad had been in the United States for a while Mm -hmm. so I'm assuming he picked up quite a bit of English yeah and was able to communicate relatively well yeah he'd been attending school here for a while, so, you know, he still has a very thick accent, mm-hmm. but, yeah, he could, he could communicate well. But for your mom, obviously, she hadn't been in the United States, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming she was primarily still speaking Tigrinya. Yeah, yeah, she knew no English, and, and even now, it's, you know, she speaks to us uh, predominantly in Tigrinya at home, mm-hmm. um, and she only really talks in English when she has to, which is at work. So how was that for her coming to the United States and trying to learn as much English as she could yeah so for my mom um I would say my mom had the worst experience with all of this out of uh the four of us in my family um my dad obviously he was here for school he was and has a good job here so he he got what he needed when he came here my brother and I obviously have the opportunities to grow up here which you know now we know english we go to school here mm-hmm. but my mom she left a pretty decent job back in eritrea her entire family's back in eritrea um compared to other people in eritrea her family was doing pretty fine mm-hmm. so for her back then and even now still she doesn't she doesn't want to be here yeah yeah has she gotten a little more used to it at this point yeah so after um a couple years in Chicago, we, we moved to New Jersey, um, which at first was harder. There's less of an Eritrean community here than in Chicago, mm-hmm. but um, we've been able to, you know, we, we know maybe four families now in the town that we live in that are Eritrean, so I think my mom has gotten a little bit more comfortable with realizing we're here for a while. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, she, I think, if given the opportunity, she would go back to Eritrea very quickly, which is interesting because my dad not only wouldn't, but can't because he speaks out against the Eritrean government a lot and he would be imprisoned very quickly. Yeah. So just to talk about your experience now a little bit, when you came to the United States, obviously people say it's a lot easier for children mm-hmm. to learn a new language because their brains aren't fully developed, mm-hmm. which would explain why it was much more difficult for your mother. Mm-hmm. So how was that experience coming and being in a new country, having to learn a new language? Yeah. Um, so my 
the first time I ever learned English was at school in Chicago. And if you know anything about the Chicago public education system, it's that it's not good. So immigrants, not just people that have money, immigrants that don't have much will fight tooth and nail for their kids to be able to go to a private school because mm -hmm. that's the only place you're going to get a good education. So that's where I went when I first came here. And I remember not knowing anything anyone was saying. And if you know nuns, they're very strict. And I remember trying to go to the bathroom and them not letting me until I said it in English. And wow. so that, that, that was my introduction to English though. And not for nothing, I, I was able to learn English very well from that school, but it's very confusing to say mm -hmm. the least, like when you first come here before you know the language. And so when did you come to New Jersey? I moved to New Jersey in the middle of seventh grade. I moved, um, and then I moved again halfway through eighth grade to another city in New Jersey. Um, but yeah, I've been here ever since. Okay, and so by that point that you moved to New Jersey, you obviously had a pretty good grasp on the English language. Yes. How did those education systems differ for you? Do you think you're better off in New Jersey versus Chicago? Because it was a private school, um, it was a lot more rigorous. Mm -hmm. I remember being very confused. It, you know, it's a smaller change between coming from Eritrea and then going to Chicago, but it was still such a big change because it was also as a Catholic school. And, you know, we had uniforms, no makeup, no nail polish, any mm -hmm. of that. And then I came to public school in New Jersey, and that was such a big change. <laughs> People wearing shorts, which was wild to me to be yeah. able to wear in school because you usually get in trouble people having phones in class all of that was crazy yeah and educationally i would say it was much better when i went to the school in chicago just because i remember a lot of the stuff that we would did in sixth grade in chicago i was doing in eighth grade here in new jersey okay yeah so different curriculums yeah. when it's public school versus private yeah so I would imagine that being that you and your brother obviously picked up quite a bit more English than mm -hmm. your mom, that puts a significant weight on you guys and some sense of responsibility mm -hmm. very early on because yeah. she couldn't communicate as well as you could. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So I think if we're out and about, um, I've like... You know, I've been in ShopRite, and my mom and I will be talking in our language, just in a random aisle, and we've had people kind of walk by and say, speak English, and it's, you know, like we're talking about tea right now. Yeah, <laughs> It doesn't yeah. matter. Um, so, in things like that, it wasn't really a big deal. I, I know that it's, even now, um, you know, when I was little, my mom would help me with school, you know, when you're like up until second grade, third grade, mm -hmm. you're kind of, you don't know anything. Your parents are helping you with school a little bit. So back in our church, she was able to help me with that very easily. Yeah. With Simon, she was able to help him until kind of then, with Simon's my brother. But eventually, obviously, the English is just way past what she's able to help him with in school. So yeah. I, even still now, he will FaceTime me, even though I'm here at Rutgers, when he needs help. Because my dad's busy working, so... To that extent, like, I've had to pick up the slack um, in terms of helping him actually go through school in the way that you would expect someone like my mom to help him. Mm -hmm. And have you had to help your mom as well with certain things? The thing that I remember most 
having to help my mom with is her citizenship test. Mm-hmm. That test is pretty insane. Yeah. Like, the questions they ask there are pretty specific. You get a packet of 100 questions. At least that's how it was when she was doing it. Um, and it's just vague facts about American history yeah. that I would probably argue a lot of people even born here don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was the English aspect and there was the learning it aspect. So I remember having to help her with that. Like, I would come from sixth grade yeah and then we'd work on her citizenship test oh like studying gosh. yeah and did she pass the test for citizenship she passed and it was weird she went into the room he didn't ask her one single question what was the test then not one question from the packet that's so interesting wow all right so you're here now in the united states how has your experience living here been obviously you know the Eritrean government has its own issues. Mm-hmm. Certainly the United States is dealing with a significant number of issues as mm-hmm. well. Some of them different, some of them the same, especially recently. Yeah. So how has that affected you? Yeah, I mean, I I think the word that I would probably use is it's disappointing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you come to the United States hoping for a better future and to a really high degree, we've been able to have better education, more rights. All of that is there. But it's not really what you expect when you come to the U.S. You don't really expect to hear about shootings every other day. You don't really expect to hear about such high racial tensions in a country that you think is just so developed when you're first coming Mm -hmm. to the U.S. So as I've grown up, I've kind of went away from the the United States is kind of where my family found a home from Eritrea to, wow, there's a lot of problems here too. Mm-hmm. So that, that's definitely been interesting. And have you had to deal with any specific issues regarding these problems, these racial problems, things like that? Yeah, I mean, what I'm realizing now is my brother gets older. Um, my brother is 15 right now. He's very tall for his age. Mm-hmm. He looks older than he is. Yeah. But he's a 15-year-old kid. Yeah. And I remember this past summer, he was going to my aunt and uncle's place to get something for my mom. They live very close to us, probably a five-minute walk. Mm -hmm. And there was a classmate that lived right across from my aunt and uncle that was classmates with Simon, who had recently posted a picture mimicking the chokehold that killed George Floyd all over social media and he was getting a lot of flack for that at that point so his mom knew that Simon was one of her son's classmates Mm -hmm. and jumped to the conclusion that Simon was there to beat up upset anything torture kid and she starts yelling at my brother and my brother tells her that he's just there to get something from my aunt and uncle's place She's not letting up. She crosses the street. She gets on their driveway, and she tells them to wait right here. She's going to call the cops. Of course, my brother comes back home. He tells me what happened, and we see, we were looking out the window of our house, and we see a cop car get into the, um, you know, into our, kind of the parking lot outside our house, Mm -hmm. stops there, gets closer to the house, but no one's coming. And then we see the kid who posted that picture of, of the mimicking the chokehold. Yeah. Um, as a joke, by the way, this isn't, That's you know, they're ridiculous. not making any statements. Yeah. And he kind of comes into the neighborhood. He points at our house with the officer. Kid goes back home. It was the kid, not even the mom? No, no, it was the kid. Mm. 
and then they eventually come out um they come out of their cars they come to our door and they start talking to us they start asking us questions they start talking about the picture that was just released again my mom's english is not perfect yeah she's terrified anyone would be you know you're seeing the news every day and my brother's 15 um so i'm kind of talking to the cops at this point um and you know they're trying to figure out if my brother was trying to do something by going there tell them that he was just going to my aunt and uncle's place and at this point you know you have to be cautious because it's completely unreasonable that a grown adult woman is yelling at a 15 year old kid that's just trying to go to his family's house but we're kind of on the defensive at this point and you kind of have to be because you never know what's going to happen so you know uh, we we talked to them they you know event they eventually left i remember i told my dad about it later that night and he ended up going to the police station and he asked to talk to them and i you know i'm he's still dealing with that now but that's kind of the theme right things will happen during the day my mom really can't deal with it because of the language barrier i'll mm-hmm. deal with it and then i'll tell my dad later and then we'll deal with it after yeah so that's kind of the trend but it's scary having a brother that's black and that looks older than he is yeah yeah i can imagine that that's incredibly difficult to deal with but yeah there's just another example of you having to take responsibility for your family yeah Yeah. and like really step up and i think that's something that a lot of children refugees end up Mm -hmm. having to deal with and people don't realize that yeah it's one thing that you have to go through this whole process to find some semblance of safety only to have to deal with a whole new group of problems. Yeah. And yeah, to exactly. have to entirely take responsibility for your family. Yeah. Well, Lily, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. And for sharing your story with us. Um, I think it's really important that stories like these get shared so that we can finally maybe make some changes. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much. In preparing for this interview, I reviewed numerous other first-hand accounts of people who came to a new country as refugees when they were children. And for all of these people, there were primarily the same responses and the same effects on them from this trauma and these long journeys that they had to go through in order to find a new home. Specifically, they received a significant amount of stress. And of course, we all go through our daily struggles with stress, but growing up in the same country that we stay in, we really have to understand that we can't know the type of stress that refugees, specifically as children, were under. The problem here, too, is especially that stress can have a dramatic effect on the development of a young brain. So that stress not only stays with them, but it affects the way that their brain develops as they grow up. Many refugees coming to a new country can also have poor access to education due to the fact that they're in a completely new place. They were very young when they came, and Sometimes it can be very difficult to have to learn a new language and to get integrated into this new system that they're a part of. 
the big thing that refugee children face is mental health challenges. And that kind of goes back to the effect that the stress has on their developing brains. It can cause these mental health challenges. But as we heard with Lily as well, there's a whole other layer of stress that comes as they grow up. And when they get older, they're taking a significant amount of responsibility in their family at such a young age. And that type of role in a family is not what children are supposed to have at that age. So naturally that can lead to many mental health challenges, especially as they get older. Lastly, children coming as refugees can face many legal challenges, especially depending on the age that they come to this new country. It's one thing for their parents knowing full well that they'll, they will be facing legal challenges, but the children can either be accepted and considered citizens of this new country they're a part of, or they will face the same legal challenges, which only contributes to the amount of stress on them and the problems that it can cause for them in the future. Now, obviously, I've run well over time uh, in the interview that I've done with Lily, but I will be attaching to this podcast all of the other stories that I reviewed in order to prepare for this interview. I think it's really important that these stories get shared and that we as a country and as a world understand the immense strain and pressure that these children are under and do everything in our power to be able to help them.